Hip hop music has always been about spreading messages of positivity and bringing people together. Hip hop has long been an expression of black culture in its rawest form, which is why we've chosen to do an episode on hip hop during the month of February. It's important to note that as hip hop continues to be a globally multi-billion dollar industry, the music has been gentrified and the true art form can be hard to find. But it's out there and with the help of some research from the Shadow League, we'll discuss some true hip hop classics later on in this episode. So popular music in general and in all its forms, owe many thanks to the black community. Rock and roll, techno, jazz, disco, you name it, there were black pioneers. And throughout history, most genres have gone through the quote-unquote whitewashing in some form or another. But hip-hop is slightly different in that it is still very much a black culture. Hip-hop culture is global and it's cultural movement. You can see not only in its music, but in its fashion and slang and everything else. Hip-hop was born in New York City by Black, Latino, and marginalized communities, and it has evolved tenfold since it began. It is important to understand hip-hop history and how Black popular culture works on a mainstream level. Masterclass said it well, so I'm just going to quote it directly from them. As a culture, hip-hop is built on four main pillars. DJing, rapping, which is also known as emceeing, breakdancing, and graffiti. It has spawned dozens of subgenres, including trap, grime, gangsta, rap, rap, rock, crunk, chill hop, bounce, and mumble rap, just to name a few. Some of those I know and some of those I have no idea about. Um, The roots of hip hop are traced to the 1970s in the borough of the Bronx in New York City, where Black, Latino, and Caribbean block parties, DJs would play soul and funk music. DJ Cool Herc's August 11th, 1973 Back to School Jam at 1520 Sedgwick Avenue is known as the birth of hip-hop. DJ Cool Herc, along with other DJs like Grand Wizard Theodore, Grandmaster Flash, and Africa Bombada, began to experiment with different techniques, including breakbeats, turntable techniques, scratching, and freestyle. The DJs I just mentioned are often credited as the pioneers of modern hip-hop and rap music. One of my favorite songs, Rapper's Delight, was released in 1979 and is now widely considered the first hip-hop record. It reached the top 40 on the U.S. Billboard charts and launched hip-hop right into the spotlight, which became a genre all on its own. We're going to return to the pillars of hip-hop that Melissa mentioned earlier because they shouldn't be understated. Um, The first DJing, the aural characteristic of the genre, newfound manipulations of sound were being used to create music. So the innovative breaks and isolation of the percussion in the beats is what helped to give hip-hop its initial rise to popularity. The second pillar was emceeing or rapping, which is the oral characteristic of the genre. This would be the poetics and lyrics. They would be manifested from the social conditions of the time. Rapid-fire wordplay spoke of stories that weren't being told. This helped a new urban narrative to rise. And the third pillar was breakdancing, which is the physical aspect of the genre. Think of it as poetry in motion. The combination of acrobatics, gymnastics, and different martial arts help to speak and intertwine different cultural influences. And graffiti is the last pillar, uh, the visual characteristics of the genre. I usually don't like graffiti too much. I know it can be done nicely, but some of it can look like vandalism. Um, There are a lot of artists who make the form of art very beautiful with meaning, but it can still be one of the most controversial elements of the bunch of the pillars. 
Um, and lastly, we didn't mention this one earlier, but I think it ties in nicely. And the pillar is knowledge, the mental characteristic of the genre. This, pill this is the pillar that helps to weave everything together. Hip hop has become a force for social change and it's imperative to know how the mix of cultures and styles fuse together, a mix of spiritual and political elements designed to empower the marginalized. People often confuse hip hop and rap, but the two are different. Whereas hip hop is a culture with the elements we've already mentioned, rap is a form of popular music that grew out of hip hop culture. In layman terms, hip hop is deep and cultural, whereas rap is more superficial and commercial. In KRS-One's song, Hip Hop vs. Rap, he summarizes the distinction saying, and I quote, rap is something you do, hip hop is something you live. And with that in mind, we're going to highlight a couple of classic power hip hop anthems, ones that really resonate with the marginalized communities from which hip hop emerged. Kendrick Lamar's High Power was released on April 12, 2011 as his debut single. High Power is stylized with three eyes, um, which Lamar said represents heart, honor, and respect. He made it known that the song was not just a song, but a movement in LA that was spe spreading like wildfire. So in simple terms, high power represents being above the madness. No matter what the world is going through, you have your self-respect and your dignity and you carry it with you always. The track salutes the Black Panther Party and the resistance against poverty. Uh, the track also recognizes the difference between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. as they were both on a quest for equality, although the approach of MLK was a nonviolent movement. I will quote a lyric from the song that stands out. Visions of Martin Luther staring at me. If I see it how he's seen it, that would make my parents happy. Sorry, mama, I can't turn the other cheek. Violent versus nonviolent for me in any context isn't something that I can get behind. Like I'm all for people, marginalized people, especially staying true to themselves and standing up for what they believe in. But call me more of a Martin Luther King than a Malcolm X. I think nonviolence is always going to be the solution. And I'll use like Colin Kaepernick and his kneeling as an example of symbolic protest without violence. I can't confidently say that his actions have made a difference in the grand scheme of the Black Lives Matter movement, but it definitely got people talking and created like a shitload of awareness. And that's better than doing nothing at all and even better than resorting to violence to help push your agenda. I agree. Uh, violence just has no place in trying to make things better. It sounds like a contradiction. Uh, to me, it doesn't really make sense, but when there's too much of a divide, it always seems to happen. It seems humans can rarely ever come to a mutual agreement, which is sad. And I think each time it happens, it puts us further back and at a disadvantage. I can't imagine how hard it is to live under such a heavy stereotype and not being able to leave it behind because it's always being pushed on you no matter what you do. Um, I just wish more people cared about each other to see further than their own lives. So the second track we wanted to highlight is Run DMC's Proud to be Black, which was from their third album, Raising Hell, which was released in May of 1986. Important to note that this album was the first platinum and multi-platinum hip-hop record, and this was the closing track on the album. The song is a proclamation of their blackness and an acknowledgement of the history of racial struggle and strife. In the track, Run compares himself to MLK and DMC compares himself to Malcolm X. The track also makes note of other well-known African-American heroes like Harriet Tubman, Jesse Owens, and George Washington Carver. This is one of the earliest instances in which the music celebrated various icons in the lyrics. As an example of the lyric from the track, um, 
you know I'm proud to be black y'all and real brave y'all and motherfucker I could never be a slave y'all so take that now Harriet Tubman was born a slave she was a tiny black woman but she was brave like Malcolm X said I won't turn the right cheek got the strength to go the length if you want to start beef do you think that it's important that real life examples and icons are used in lyrics? Harriet Tubman is a great example of strength that not many people can say they have. It is hard to be that brave when everyone is against you and you were born right into a situation made to bring you down. It's like she never had the chance, but she rose above it and stood up for what she believed in. They're paying homage to the people who had to experience the struggle and hardships. While it's great that we all have an understanding of where hip-hop came from, its origin story, and its socioeconomic context, it's also important to understand its place in the modern world of hip-hop culture and where it's going. The legends from the 70s will always be legends. They helped to create the foundation of what we know hip-hop and rap culture as it is today. It paved the way for current artists who are leading not only on the music charts, but leading the way in the sneaker industry, the fashion industry, and creating a lot of the slang that you hear from younger generations. And yes, there is a lot of garbage on the radio and streaming services these days, but you are what you listen to. So listen to what you like and what resonates with you and be happy with your choice. But you should always understand what you're listening to. I think we should also mention the effects of hip hop music on other parts of the world, far away from the Bronx or even North America for that matter. We'll take a look at Latin X hip hop, Korean hip hop, and Nigerian hip hop. Because the underlying message, or more so the reason behind the messages in old school hip hop, are quite prevalent in the music no matter where in the world you come from. Or so you would think. I feel like one of the biggest complaints fans of old school hip hop have with the new up and comers in the industry is that the main ideas of the music have shifted. Whereas the music used to largely focus on the struggle with politics and the powers and control and lower income and marginalized communities being not heard, the ideas in a lot of the music now are power, money, women, and violence. From a business side of the industry, this is great because this is what's selling. But the creative and passion of the lyrics, the foundation of hip hop, has been made into a commercial product. In its origin days, in the late 70s into the 80s, you think of hip hop. You think of like two turntables and a mic. And now you mention hip hop and you think champagne, diamond grills and strippers. Yes, it definitely did take an extreme, extreme turn. Uh, but when did the real artists, you know, the ones with the talent and the knack for the lyrics and beats get pushed aside for more commercial pop that it's synonymous for? We found a really great article on what went wrong with dot com. Uh, it's from 2014, but it, I mean, it's still pretty relevant. This article, along with a few other sources we found online, helped Melissa and I, two very ignorant people to the world of hip-hop, get a better understanding of what went wrong with the music as an industry. So we'll start in the 1990s, where there were very few socio-political albums released that year, ones that lyricized things about police brutality, riots, and life in so-called inner cities. Examples include Public Enemies, Fight the Power, from their Fear of Black Planet album, Ice Cube's America's Most Wanted, and Tribe Called Quest's People's Instinctive Travels and Paths of Rhythm. The mainstream media labeled Ice Cube as gangster rap, and both Cube and Tribe's albums were rated poorly by the evangelical Rolling Stone magazine. Amidst these albums and tracks with strong messages, the most popular hip-hop and rap albums of the year were MC Hammer's Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him and Vanilla Ice's To The Extreme. When I think back to that time... You literally couldn't go anywhere with hearing or seeing anything that didn't have to do with MC Hammer and his crazy large pants <laughs> or Vanilla Ice and his crazy big pointy hair. It's true. This right off the bat is a perfect example of real versus fake for hip hop. 
while can't touch this and Ice Ice Baby were catchy, you can already see where this story is going. <laughs> also in the same year, mainstream media is introduced to the notorious B.I.G., who amongst his lyrics about having a hard early life raps about champagne and high-end clothing labels. This is Puff Daddy and Bad Boy Records, creating elements for radio-friendly music for the genre for commercialized songs like Big Papa and One More Chance, two songs that I definitely loved back in the day. I also did. Those are good songs. True believers of hip-hop will let you know that real albums, such as Method Man's To Call, was totally neglected by the mainstream media that year. In 1993, KRS-One released his self-titled album, and it's And it was a hit on the underground pirate radio, but it was totally ignored by the mainstream media as well. Also in 1993, we began to see a lot of those so-called mafioso elements aligned with hip-hop music. And we see gangster-type names like Bobby Steeles, Rolly Fingers, and now we have mafia-type hip-hop. Their portrayal is very over-the-top, and a lot of times it's ridiculous. I think I'll have to agree with you there. It's a fictitious world that's being created, but it's selling... And it's selling well, and hip-hop, after all, is big business. The biggest hip-hop album that year was Bone Thugs and Harmony's E-1999 Eternal. I actually had this album, and I loved it. Um, it fused hip-hop and R&B, and although the lyrics and videos for the tracks could be a little horror-ish, the most successful track from the album was Crossroads, which was a lot more R&B than it actually was hip-hop. Yes, that song was extremely popular. Jay-Z and Nas also popularized the mafioso image. Uh, there were many true hip-hop albums released this year, though, uh, including Helta Skelta, Nocturnal, and The Lost Boys, Legal Drug Money. But the album that would and still are most remembered by the media would be The Fugees, The Score, and Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt. Also in 1996, we- on March 9th, 1997, Notorious B.I.G. was also shot to death by an unknown gunman. This is still an unsolved crime. Is it the same unknown gunman? Well, they're unknown, so we do not know. Also in 1997, Mace's Harlem World was a huge success, thanks again to Puffy and Bad Boy Records, and Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly with Timbaland's synthesized R&B-influenced production was also a huge success. Also a big hit that year was Jay-Z's Hard Knock Life, which sampled Annie, the Broadway musical movie. And if you remember a few episodes back in our Acting White episode, We were really on the fence about Black people being regular theater goers. So this track definitely highlights the alignment with hip hop to the middle class mainstream, whose pastimes just happen to include things like Broadway productions. This music takes me back to high school. I loved all those songs and their big, bright, ridiculous videos, especially Missy. I loved her. The list goes on for quote unquote true hip hop albums to be overshadowed and receive no mainstream recognition over more tame, radio friendly, relatable music. It's sad but true that the art of hip hop has evolved. But as already mentioned, this is business. And it's also sad that companies and entities that have persuasion over people like Rolling Stone magazine or Billboard have helped to catapult hip hop into what we see now. If more or lesser known, more socio-political driven albums were given higher presence, maybe they would have been the more successful albums of this year we just mentioned. It's true. It's easier these days to tune into the popular and the more black market stuff, if you will. Everything is accessible via the internet. When we were growing up, it was whatever the radio played that introduced me to music and even stations or TV channels that were geared toward more urban so-called underground music. They had their financial agendas too, which is why even to this day, I know backwards and forwards, the Fuji's, the Score album, and Mesa's Harlem World. 
I know next to nothing about exhibits paparazzi or Mecca and the Soul Brother or Runaway Slave. Maybe I could have been a true hip hop head if only I knew where to turn to back in the day. That's very true. There's a lot of good music out there that you never would have known on. Um, I don't really think we need to talk about Little Wayne or the 50 Cent era because like we said before, hip hop has definitely gone in an interesting direction. Pop mostly focuses on the likes and success of artists like Nicki Minaj or Cardi B, Drake and Kanye West, artists who are definitely raking in a massive amount of cash and whose music is far from origins of hip hop. Hip hop is no longer political. It's no longer hardcore. Kendrick Lamar's 2011 release of Section 80 was dismissive of the mainstream sound and still did well and received recognition. So maybe there is some sort of hip hop renaissance on the horizon. We shall see. Well said. I think it's time that we visit some other nations to see what's going on in the world of hip hop elsewhere. I'll start with South Korea, where K-hip hop is a subgenre of the famous K-pop. It's believed that Korea's first contact with hip hop started in the Itaewon neighborhood of Seoul, where there was a U.S. base nearby. This was in the late 70s to early 80s. Initially, light clubs were open to American soldiers only, but by the mid-80s, they were open to locals as well. Whereas hip-hop in the U.S. started with rappers and DJs, hip-hop in Seoul started with dancing, where locals would learn from American soldiers various forms of dance, including breakdancing, dancing like Michael Jackson, and New Jack Swing. One very popular nightclub at the time, Moon Knight, would host citywide competitions for dancers. In fact, Korea's first hip-hop star was Hyun Ji Young, who is still considered to be one of the greatest dancers in Moon Knight's history. Hyun was in a group of sorts called Hyun Jin Yun and Wawa. They debuted in 1992, and it was a singer and a bunch of backup dancers. This led the way for other groups of dancers like Deuce. The collection of music that Deuce would perform would be a combination of Michael Jackson, New Jack Swing, and Funk, which all encompass is a definite Korean take on American hip-hop. This led the way for the modern conventions we see in K-pop today. It wasn't an easy road for Korean hip-hop, since it was so much more dance-centric than its American counterpart of lyrics and beats. This was, or more so, is rap dance, technically. On one side, you had Korean-Americans who had their own aesthetic of hip-hop, and you had Korean-borns who liked the exploration of rap within their own language. If you're interested in listening to some Korean hip-hop, I'd like to suggest G-Dragon, who is also nicknamed the king of K-pop. And there's also Tiger JK and Yoon Mei Rae, just to name a few. In the world of Latinx hip-hop, one of the first Hispanics to come to prominence is DJ Charlie Chase of the Cold Crush Brothers. Hitting the scene in 1975 alongside DJ Tony Tone, Grandmaster Kaz, and Almighty KG, they helped to establish the Latinx community as a force within the early days of hip-hop culture in the Bronx. In the 80s, Chase would DJ alongside the legendary funk master Flex and would receive criticism from both Blacks and Hispanics as the genre was believed to be reserved for the African-American. However, over time, his talent outweighed his racial differences. He, com- he infused hip-hop with salsa to create a sound that was uniquely his own. This paved the way for more and more artists to mix their native sounds with mainstream hip-hop and for collaborations with Latinx artists to teach the mass global market. Over the course of 80s and into the 90s, many artists would pop onto the scene doing their hardest to maintain their cultural identity in their version of hip-hop. Kid Frost, Mellow Man Ace, Fat Joe, and Cypress Hill. Cypress Hill's multi-platinum 1991 album and their even more successful 1993 follow-up, Black Sunday, 
showed that there was mainstream acceptance for Latinx hip hop. Hip hop was now not only an African-American cultural movement, but an outcry from the disadvantaged minority groups in the ghettos of the U.S. With the rise of Latin rap, trap, and reggaeton, like Katie Kane and Los Zafiros, crossover artists like Maluma and Bad Bunny, and even hip-hop collaborations with Latinx artists like Drake, who sang Spanish with Romeo Santos for Bad Bunny's Mia, and Travis Scott, who teamed up with Rosalia on Taken. Lastly, we wanted to highlight Nigerian hip-hop, which intermingles Afrobeats, reggae, and R&B for its unique sound. Ron Ikondeo's 1981 album titled The Way I Feel, also the name of the title track, it's considered the first Nigerian hip-hop record. Ikondeo, known as Ronnie, was one of Nigeria's earliest adopters of rap music. Just like American hip-hop, Nigerian hip-hop is rich in battles. With MCs like Rugged Man and Mode 9 dropping diss tracks against their peers. In the late 90s, the Remedy's groundbreaking track, Shakomo, which today remains one of the most important songs in Nigerian hip-hop history, debuted, and the rapper in the group, Adiris Abdul Karim, attained cult status. He created a unique way of how Nigerian rap could be delivered. Despite the battles being the predominant force in Nigerian hip-hop lyrics, the music is also rich in speaking about the socioeconomic state of the nation, which, just like original hip-hop, is the true essence of the culture. If you're interested in listening to some Nigerian hip-hop, I'd like to suggest Olamide, Fino, and Ice Price, just to name a few. Even though we don't know much about hip-hop, I think we've covered a lot about it, and as always, we've learned something. We did our best and educated ourselves while doing our research. We thank you again for listening and encourage you to reach out to us on social media about anything hip-hop related or just anything in general. We can be reached at Mixed DNA Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Bye, everyone. Bye.